they tell stories, and the stories they tell make sense once you start listening closely. I'm talking about music. Music tells powerful stories, like love songs when you hear them at a wedding, like victory songs at athletic events that pump you up. I listen to music when I write sermons. I listen to ambient study music that helps me focus. Even greater still are soundtracks that tell the story, classic soundtracks like Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. My favorite one for that is Chim Chimney. Also, plays tell stories. I had a student come up to me and say, Pastor Kirk, you haven't listened to the music for Les Mis? If you like Les Mis, you'll love the music. And of course, a story of music is popular on New York that finally was captured on film, and that's Hamilton, a hip-hop, rap, pop music that I didn't understand a word of it. We've sung some songs this morning to help communicate our theme this morning. That was pretty intentional, so thank you, Karen. Joy to the world and how great our joy. That was intentional to tell the story of joy. This is the time of year about joy. And unfortunately, some people didn't understand what joy is to be all about. These guys uh, realized that nobody told me. If you're listening on the radio, there's three children holding J-O-Y, and they are not happy. Joy doesn't necessarily mean happy, and happy doesn't necessarily mean joy. They're different, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Happiness has no answer for suffering based on how one feels. No answer. Our wonderful Constitution says it's a right for the pursuit of happiness, which is a good and fantastic second pursuit. But when we seek happiness in our pleasure, our work, our passions, even relationships, and of course, yes, wealth and accumulation, the book of Ecclesiastes 1.14 gives us a warning that we are chasing after the wind or vapor. King David, who writes half of the Psalms, says this in Psalm 30, verses 5, and then 11 and 12. For God's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Amen. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You turned my wailing into dancing, and you removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Those who encounter Jesus, who know him and he knows you, that word joy becomes a reality because as we have learned during Advent, hope is a who. Faith is linked to the who. Peace comes from the who. And joy is recognizing the who. The who is Jesus. After Jesus died and rose again and ascended, he didn't leave us alone. He sent us the Holy Ghost, his spirit, at Pentecost, and it changed people's lives. Changed his life so much that the early church had people scratching their head on how they acted. The book of Acts chapter 5 verse 40 tells us this in the New Testament. Gamaliel's speech persuaded the Sanhedrin's leaders, and they called the apostles in, and they had them flogged, which means they were whipped with 39 lashes. 
Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And their response in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What about a joy encounter like that? Could one, could the one we sing about, the Emmanuel, be the joy we are looking for? The Christmas hymn goes like this, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Dispersing the gloomy night, clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. A joy encounter sounds really good, doesn't it? So here's where we're going in this message. First of all, what happens when joy meets fear? Who do you think wins? Secondly, if you could summarize joy like in one word, is that even possible? There sure is a clue. And finally this, how does joy look like? How does joy get played out in real time? Like in the real world, outside the walls of the church. And we'll listen to a little brother, a little brother who gives some incredible insight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy throne of grace, we come with humility and gratitude in the name of Jesus. Father, you love the world so much, you loved us so much, you loved each person so much, that you sent your one and only Son to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf, to rise and defeat death, hell, sin, and Satan on our behalf. And you didn't leave us alone after Jesus left planet Earth. Through your Holy Spirit, you live in the lives, in the hearts, in the souls, in the spirits, in those who trust you, those who seek you, those who bow down to you, and those who love you, and those who follow you. So once again, I ask that you would anoint this message to encourage and equip this church family gathered here, watching, or listening. I pray that you would extend your fame and glorify your name, and I pray that you'll bring glory and honor to your name. So in your fullness of joy, will you pour that joy out on us today? And all God's people that could agree said, amen and amen. Well, I want to encourage you to write down some notes and to dig in and to maybe jot down some things that hit you in your own copy of the Bible, God's Word, and so that you can go back. And once again, this insert in the bulletin is an easier way for you to follow along and to get more, I think you'll get more out of the message if you jot that down and make some notes. So the first question is, what happens when joy and fear meet? Who do you think wins? I'll give you a clue. Number one is this, with joy there is no more phobia. Fear not has been proclaimed. The actual words that are in the New Testament are the words no phobia. No phobia. Think of all kinds of phobias that people have. Fear of spiders. Fear of heights. Fear of speaking in public. Fear of being alone. Fear of being forgotten. Did you know that there are 365 verses in the Bible about do not fear? One for every day of the week. Wouldn't that be something interesting and fun to do? 
just to simply Google, do not fear in the Bible, and then read that for your devotions for 2022. You see, you see this do not fear throughout the Advent story. This no-phobia. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the scriptures, you can take a look at these scriptures later and jot them down. You'll see this no-phobia that comes first in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. An old priest by the name of Zechariah hears the word no-phobia. No fear. Do not fear, Zechariah. Do not fear because the child that you're going to have, you've been waiting for a child and maybe living with the disgrace of not having a child. This child that you're going to have, which will be John the Baptist, will be like Elijah preparing the way for the Lord. Sir, you have not been forgotten. No phobia. You hear no phobia again when teenager Virgin Mary has an angel that comes and says, no phobia, don't be afraid. How can I have a child? I've never been with a man. You are favored. You are favored. You are favored, and you will have a child. You, you hear this word, no phobia, again, when you meet Joseph. What the Bible tells us is that he was a righteous man, and he was trying to decide whether he was going, how he was going to break off the engagement with now pregnant Mary forever, he would be cast with her, either accepting the shame that they had relationships outside of marriage or the scorn that she had would become his. And so he was trying to contemplate that. And the, and the Bible says that the angel of the Lord came and said, no phobia, do not fear, because the one that you have is the one that Israel has been waiting for. Not only Israel, but all the nations. And your new job will be to protect this child, no phobia, a new purpose has come. And then we hear the scriptures tell us that fear not has been proclaimed to the angels, or excuse me, to the shepherds, no phobia. All the angels came to the shepherds, an angel came to the shepherds as they were watching their fields by night, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then the Bible uses this word, and they feared with fear mega greatly. That's what the scriptures actually say about the phobia. They, they feared with fear mega greatly. Three different translations, including the word, including King James, uses this word. They were sore afraid, S-O-R-E. I thought of that and I kind of chuckled. I, I know about working outside and I know about using muscles that you don't usually do. You have sore. The Bible says that they were terrified. So great with phobia. In 1965, the cartoonist Howard Schultz from the Twin Cities put to pen and put to motion Luke chapter 2. Charlie Brown asks Linus, does anybody know the meaning of Christmas? Does anybody know that? And Linus says, I do. And as he reads and quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, notice what he does. 
when he comes to no phobia, no fear, he drops his security blanket. Was that intentional? Probably. And so reading from Luke chapter 2, our friend Linus reminds us why there's no phobia. No phobia for the shepherds. This little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is thought about Charlie Brown. No phobia. It's because the good news has come. A baby was born in David's town, a town called Bethlehem. And it wasn't just one angel that said that, but a mighty warrior band. So how do you summarize joy in one word? Is that even possible? If you did a interview on the street, if you went out to the Pablo Center, if you were at the mall, or if you were walking downtown, and you asked people, how would you summarize the Christmas story, the Christmas season, in one words? You can imagine the different answers that you'd get. Answers maybe like stuff, Santa, traditions, elf, magic, holiday spirit. Or even ugly sweaters. I know that's two, but you get Well, the no-phobia angel that appeared to Joseph gave a clue. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, here's the one word that summarizes Christmas. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him... Say the word with me. One, two, three. Ready? Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's one word, but translated in English, it's three. But it's actually one word with three realities. And so let me explain what those three realities are. The first reality is this, is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, this in itself differentiates followers of Christ from both Islam and Mormonism. Jesus is more than just a great prophet. This separates and differentiates itself from those who are Jews, 
and follow Judaism because Jesus is more than a great teacher or a great rabbi. In fact, Jesus' good friend and disciple Philip asked this question in John 14, verses 9 through 10. You can look it up. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And then in verse 9, Jesus goes on to say, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Joy, summarized in one word, is Emmanuel. And that means this, Jesus is God. We call that the doctrine and the mystery of the Trinity. The second reality is of Emmanuel is this, that God took on flesh. In the shortest Christmas narrative, the Apostle Paul gives us a hint of that Christmas narrative in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who is born in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and was found in the appearance of a man. So what does it mean that God took on flesh? Here's a couple thoughts for you to wrestle with. The one who is filled with beauty, who is filled with holiness, who is filled with awe and wonder, now has a messy diaper and needs to be changed. This is Emmanuel, God who took on flesh. Uh, think about this. The one who is almighty and all-powerful, the one who spoke the stars into the universe, the one who knows the very hairs on your head, who knows the color of your eyes, who knows the sound of your voice, now needs to be nursed and fed. This is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Think about this. The one who has sovereign control, nothing surprises him. He controls the hearts of kings And he is in control, and his kingdom will last forever. Now is so vulnerable that he and his parents are refugees fleeing from crazy Herod. This is Emmanuel, God who took on flesh. Don't we sing? Don't we sing this? Hark the herald angels sing. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come offspring of a virgin womb. What's the next line? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead hidden. No. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Here's the third reality. Jesus is with us. He walks with us. He comes with us. Always. His last words that he said to his disciples was, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What a joy. We can take him up on that. My friend, Pastor Kurt Madison, in our boxes this week a grief toolbox from grief share their toolbox and the very first words that our help 
with this grief toolbox sheet that he gave was this acknowledge that we have God at our side 24-7 even when we have difficulty feeling his presence or being unsure of what we ask for. Just call out his name. Just call out his name. That alone is a prayer. He hears you and he's already there for you just waiting to hear you say, I need you, Jesus. Wow. I've shared this before, one of our devotionals that my wife and I read uh, quickly before we go off in our day is Jesus Always. And on the back side of your bulletin, if you want to turn there, this was the devotions that came earlier this month, and I wanted to share it with you. I'm reading now on the back side of the bulletin. The prospect of the righteous is joy. That means your prospects are excellent, for I've clothed you with my robe of righteousness. So begin each day eager to receive the joy I have in store for you. It's like Jesus is talking to you. Some of my followers fail to find the pleasures I've prepared for them because they focus too much on problems in their lives and trouble in the world. Instead of living to the full, they live cautiously, seeking to minimize pain and risk. In doing so, they also minimize their joy and their effectiveness in my kingdom. That's not my way for you. As you awaken each morning, seek my face with hopeful anticipation. Invite me to prepare you not only for the difficulties on the road ahead, but also for the pleasures I've planted along your path. Then take my hand as you begin your journey through the day and let me share in everything you encounter on the way, including all the joy. Oh, that's a good word. We need that word. See, Emmanuel has come, and because of the reality of Emmanuel, no phobia. So what does joy look like in real time? What does that sound like and feel like, and how does that work in real time? So let a little brother give you some insight. Did you know that Jesus had siblings? The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 13, 55, that it actually Jesus had four younger brothers, and then he had two sisters. And initially, those siblings did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they thought he was crazy. They wanted him to come home back to Nazareth. One of those siblings was a man by the name of James, a younger brother. And we understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that Jesus had a series of one-on-one -on -one encounters after his resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us that one of those was his little brother James. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder if Jesus asked James, how's mom doing? Will you look after mom? Who knows? We'll find that out when we get to heaven. But we find out that James grew in his influence in the early church. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul, who writes over half the New Testament, to verify that his life was really changed from being a blasphemer and a persecutor, meets with two, we would call them leaders or influencers or pillars of the early church. One was Peter and one was James. So his place of influence was being recognized. Finally, in the book of Galatians 1, 18 through 20, we see James's influence or the role that he played in the early church. And in Acts chapter 15, in a very important understanding, he was the final voice 
in an important vote. It was to decide, should Gentiles who are outside the Jewish faith, should they be circumcised too and follow the laws of the Jewish people? Should, should that, is, is that what they should do? And they looked, to, they looked to James to have the final voice, and his discerning voice said, no. No. So it's James that we look to for joy. It's James that we look to in the very first chapter of the book of James. And the way that he introduces himself is James, little brother of Jesus. No. He introduces himself this way, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you and me. Wow. This is what he says about joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich, well, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. But blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. Just let that wash over you. Having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life, and the Lord has promised to those who love him. Consider it all joy, all joy when you face various trials. God will pour out his grace. How he does that, I don't know. When he does that, I'm not sure. But I know he supernaturally meets his people in a powerful way during trials and suffering. He has promised, and he's never broken a promise. He has never broken a promise. So let me illustrate this for you. Uh, illustration came this week. My wife uh, leaves work at 7.15 uh, during school days. She's a teacher. And uh, in her car, we don't have auto start. We have what's called hubby start. It's a lot cheaper. Um, it's worked for us. And so I back the car out and turn on the heater and turn on a radio. And she loves a radio station uh, one program by Ron Hutchcraft called A Word With You. And on Tuesday, late afternoon, we went for a walk, and she said, you got to listen to this. you got to listen to Ron Hutchcraft today. So I looked it up. Ron Hutchcraft worked with Youth for Christ for years and years and years. He's just a delightful, godly man. And he told this story called Sunsets in the Puddles. He wrote, some of the worst stories of human brutality in history, of course, come out of Hitler's concentration camps in World War II. 
But out of those camps also come some incredible examples of human triumph and heroism. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust in the infamous Auschwitz death camp, he was in four camps in three years, told some of those stories in his book. He testified that some of those in Auschwitz were surviving better after a year than some did after only a few days. He said that those who didn't sink were those who drew their outfit from outlook from what he described as a, a second dimension experience. All the prisoners in the camp shared the same first dimension experience, the terrible horrors they were subject to every day. But the second dimension that some drew upon, according to Viktor Frankl, had four elements. One, seeing meaning. Two, seeing beauty. Three, maintaining humor. And four, thinking future. One example that stood out in Frankel's mind was the man who ran into the barracks one day, gathered all his fellow prisoners together to go outside and see something special. He was actually celebrating the beauty of blazing sunset reflected in the puddles from last night's rain. How does that relate to joy? Here's how it does. Each Sunday we always ask this question, how do we eagerly respond to God's word this Sunday on joy? So I ask you, Think in terms of joy of the Lord Jesus and how you find meaning in Jesus. How, how will your future be with Jesus? How do you see humor with Jesus? And how do you see the beauty of Jesus? All these are written down in your bulletin if you want to write them out. Write out your joyful thoughts and your joyful insights and see what the Lord lays on your heart. Secondly, I just want to invite you once again to pray for six days. Pray for that family member. Pray for a friend. Pray for a work associate. Pray for a neighbor who will join you and sit with you for a Christmas service. My message is entitled on Friday, Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's an evangelistic message. And as we have been doing, as Pastor Brian and I have been asking, I hope that you've been praying and asking, God's people, asking God to go ahead and prepare the hearts of a neighbor, a friend, a family member who needs to hear the gospel. They'll hear that clearly. Would you pray for six days? And finally this. I just want to encourage you one more time to take a picture. To take a picture either here or outside at the across from the Welcome Center or at the nativity set that's in the fellowship hall. Take a picture or share our face Bethesda Facebook video and drop off an invite. These invites are at the Welcome Center. See what God will do. See what God will do. You have a part in that as well too. And I'm asking you to pray and to share the joy of Christ. Let's pray and get our hearts ready to take part in communion. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that your little brother, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, shared about joy and consider it all joy when you face various trials. We don't talk that way. We don't think that way. We don't want that to be the case. But hard times and suffering and trials will come. And we thank you for that promise, that future with you that we'll receive a crown of life 
for those that persevere. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that promise. And thank you for this meal that we're about to take. A meal of your grace, a meal of your forgiveness, a meal for us. In Jesus' name, amen.